Now, I, I know it's Christmas Eve, and my guess is most of you have done your Christmas shopping. Uh, but I have a little Christmas confession, which is I hate shopping. Um, I just loathe it. And I, I love giving gifts, but I hate that moment when you're in a store. Maybe this is just a guy thing. When you're in a store, and I'm looking for something. I know what I want. I want to kind of buy it, bag it, and get out. And so I'm roaming the store, and inevitably, some employee walks up to me and says this phrase that I just hate. Can I help you? And I just want to say, like, no, go away. I'll tell you when I need you. Let me just roam. It's like asking for directions, I think. Like, I'm not going to ask you. I just want to roam the stores until I actually find what I'm looking for. But there was this store growing up. And I grew up in Spokane, so there was this mythical store that you could just roam and everyone would leave you alone. It had all of my favorite things. It had books, movies, CDs. It was a store called Hastings. All right? I'm guessing most of you don't know what this is, all right? But it was this wonderful store that I think COVID killed or something. May it rest in peace. But, but you could just roam it. And I remember one day I was just like a kid roaming Hastings, and I happened to be in the book kind of area. And I saw this carousel of yellow books, and I realized what these were. I'd hit, and I'd hit like the, the, the literary jackpot. These were called cliff notes. Do you guys know, remember what these are? And so 12-year-old Stephen stumbles on these things called cliff notes, and let me just kind of explain what these are. These are books written on larger books. So let's just say your teacher assigns you the Iliad and it's like 400 pages and anybody got time to read 400 pages in high school? And so you buy for $4 cliff notes and for 60 pages, you could be better prepared for class and the discussion than if you actually read the book and got confused. And so I stumbled upon cliff notes and I thought, this is just good stewardship of time. Like, this is... Right? Work smarter, not harder. And so I would buy all of these. I'm a little ashamed to say it. But though I had a lot of these books, I'm pretty sure that the editors of Cliff Notes never actually wrote a Cliff Notes of the Old Testament. I'm pretty sure they might have done it for a few books, but I'm pretty sure they never attempted to kind of summarize the major contours and themes from Genesis to Revelation or Genesis to Malachi, I'm pretty sure they never attempted to summarize the entire Old Testament. Well, here's the wonderful thing. Matthew actually does it for us. Matthew, in 17 verses, gives us the Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament. So Genesis up to the birth of Christ. Up to Christmas. Now, I don't know about you, but when I sometimes read a genealogy, I kind of just glaze over and I skip it. I mean, I didn't even want to read it, so I made Heather read it for me this morning. So, thank you, Heather. But if we slow down, if we kind of look at this genealogy, Matthew actually kind of puts some amazing theological truths in this genealogy. And I don't know if you heard as Heather was reading it, but it really does move in three stages, doesn't it? Matthew's like an an architect, right? He likes symmetry or something because it's 14, 14, 14. There's these generations moving from Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian captivity, from the Babylonian captivity to Jesus. There are three 
different genealogies of 14 and all communicate theologically the sort of cliff notes of the Bible. So, this is the big idea. I usually give a big idea to you, to my church. So this is the big idea. It's not going to be on, but if you have kind of even the children's worksheet, you'll have some things to fill out. And the big idea in this genealogy is simply this. Jesus comes through an unexpected line at an unexpected time to accomplish an expected design. You like that, huh? Merry Christmas. I'm never that good. All right? An expect, unexpected line, unexpected time, but an expected design. So go, go, go to verse 2. In this first section of 14 in this genealogy, it starts with Abraham and moves to the greatest king that Israel has ever had, David. But from verse 2 to 6, I don't know if you noticed, there's something odd. This genealogy is basically a paternity test, right? And so you've got man after man after man listed. But in this section, there's actually four women listed. And you might think, okay, so the matriarch of Israel are going to be listed. You know, the, the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who's going to be listed, right? So you've got Sarah and Rebecca and Leah and Rachel. That is the sort of expected women if, you know, if they were going to be listed, that is who we would expect to be listed the official matriarchs of the Old Testament, but we find something very unexpected in this first section of 14. Four women, and not the original sort of kind of famous matriarch, we have a new list of matriarchs. And they're very, very unexpected. Now, all sort of Ancestry.com's if you do that sort of thing, they are unexpected. So my dad retired recently, and he has gotten into studying our past ancestors. And so he'll text me from time to time, you know, a report that he gets kind of spit out to him about our ancestors. And so like a year ago, he sends me like a page about this, this uh, man whose last name is Brucker who died in a concentration camp in World War II. That was a sort of odd Tuesday to get sent that. But, but then a few months after that, my dad sent me some information. It was actually a page in a book about a distant relative named Theobald Brucker. He was born in 1779, and evidently he had a good education. He married a young woman and had three children. And like many in that time, he wanted a better life. And so he moved his family to southern Ukraine near Odessa, which is a port city in the Black Sea. And eventually... With hard work, grit, he became mayor of a city in that region. Now, who is this guy like? I'm like, oh, this, this is great. Like, this is cool, right? So I'm like, all right, so what's he like? Well, I'm quoting here. This man, Theodore Brucker, he liked order, and consequently he was very strict and severe in dispensing justice. Now, I'm like stopped there, and I was like, well, that could be good, right? Like, justice is good. Order is good. This could be great. I should have just stopped reading right then. Now I'm quoting here from this book about my great, 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 great somebody. It happened one time that he gave an order about tidiness in the home in his city and threatened to flog anyone who disobeyed. Now we've got a problem. I quote, Unfortunately, his own wife violated the rule. Now remember, 
Brucker's aren't inconsistent. So, Brucker had her arrested, and <laughs> I can't make this up, and the mayor sentenced her to be caned. Now, thankfully, his counselor stepped in and, you know, didn't do it. But that's my family tree right there. Now, my guess is, you men, you husbands, fathers, we've all made some bonehead mistakes. I'm pretty sure you've never gone and stooped this far, have you? So all, if you look at all of our Ancestry.com reports, like we all have those sorts of things in which you just go, yeah, we're not going to talk about that. Uh, uh, yeah, that was, that was uh, an unfortunate reality in the past. And so you would think, when you think of Israel's history and this genealogy and this Ancestry.com report that's kind of spit out, you just assume that there would be certain unpleasant situations in the story that you just skip over. I mean, Matthew doesn't have to list the kind of sordid stories in the Old Testament, and yet he does. He lists four women, doesn't he? He lists Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And Bathsheba isn't even named. She's just called the wife of Uriah. Now, why? Why are these women listed in this long line? They could be skipped over. I mean, Tamar played the part of a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute, probably. Ruth was from an enemy tribe, from Moab. And Bathsheba, well, she married a Hittite and then had a child with someone who wasn't her husband, David. I mean, Matthew didn't have to mention these names, and yet he does. And he does, I think, to make a really important theological point, which is God is bringing about the messianic line through the most unexpected of means. God is going to kind of display his greatness. God is going to accomplish his divine means through unexpected means. He's going to use outsiders. He's going to use Gentiles. He's going to use those aspects in the past that we all don't talk about in polite company. God's going to use all of those sorts of things in order to accomplish this great end, which is the birth of Jesus to which we are celebrating today. An unexpected line. But then if you go to the next section, after David's mention in verse 6, we have 14 more generations And then it's listed, and we have this sort of repeated theme, this conversation or this phrase, deportation to Babylon, which is the exile. And so in this next section, we have the the sort of height of Israel and David and Solomon. They built a temple and the tabernacle. You've got the height of Israel. And in 14 generations, the wheels fall off, and it's as if they are spit out of the land. In this list of, of kind of men in this line, you see in verse 10, Amos is listed. The prophet Amos, who is known as that great prophet of judgment. So if we can say that the first sort of 14 is it's just a display of God's mercy that he uses everyone and anyone in order to accomplish his means. The second 14 is just a reminder of the consequence of sin, of judgment, the curse of what our brokenness accomplishes in our lives, which is that we are exiled from God. 
And so here is a reminder, four times it's described that they are kicked out of the land, which sounds bad. It sounds as if, yeah, they, they, they lost a house. I mean, my, my, my mother and father-in-law, uh, a few years ago, there was a house fire and they lost everything. The house completely burned down. Actually, my wife's wedding dress was in the house and it burned. Everything was gone. And it was hard. It was sad. It was tragic. But this is far greater for Israel. They lose their friends, their family. They lose the temple, the tabernacle. They are kicked out of the lands. They can't worship. They've lost everything. And so, and if you might remember, because we just finished the book of Daniel, like this genealogy, like it ends with God's people asking the most fundamental question, which is, in light of our unfaithfulness, is God still going to be faithful to his promise? I mean, God is going to use anyone, but the question at the end of this sort of section of the genealogy, which is, Maybe God's not going to use anyone. Maybe, just maybe, God is not going to show up. Will God's faithfulness outshine God's people's unfaithfulness? And so, starting then at the end of that section in the Babylonian captivity, you have listed there um, Josiah, And then you've got 14 more names, and these 14 names you probably don't recognize. These are, in one sense, the silent generation. So from the Babylonian captivity up until the first century, up until the advent of Christ, up until the birth of Christ, you have generation after generation where prophets aren't speaking. It's as if God has gone quiet. And so the question remains, will darkness win? Will God show up? When darkness was sort of at its apex, when God's people again and again, right, first Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then the Romans, when occupation after occupation, oppression after oppression, when all seems bleak, when darkness it just covers and reeks, the question is, is God going to show up? God's mercy exile. But then we read in this third section that Joseph shows up. And Joseph has a son, an adopted son, through Mary, verse 16, who's going to be called Jesus. And the question is, from the genealogy from verse 2 all the way to verse 16, what does this do for our expectations for Christmas? There is a messianic hope all throughout the Old Testament. This seed of the woman that would come, that would crush Satan, that would push back the darkness, that would defeat evil and death, the ultimate enemy, that would conquer sin. There's this expectation, this hope, and yet God shows up at the most unexpected time. We've all experienced that, right? Where, Where just enough time has passed where just hope is lost. And that's what happens when Jesus shows up. It's an unexpected time. And though it looks sometimes like God is late, God just loves a dramatic entry, doesn't he? And that's what we see in this genealogy. This dramatic entry at the perfect time. And so you've got this unexpected line. You've got this unexpected time. But 
what is the Cliff Notes? I said that Cliff Notes doesn't just kind of describe the, the sort of messianic line that's unexpected and the messianic timing that's perfect. There's also a divine to it, but this divine is, interestingly enough, not unexpected at all. There's an expectation to it. Now, Jesus is mentioned multiple times because this is like his genealogy, but if you go, there's a repeated name that comes up second most to Jesus. Actually, two names. Abraham. David. And the question is, why do Abraham and David come up so often? Or, look there at verse 1, why is Jesus called the son of David and the son of Abraham? Like, what is Matthew trying to communicate to us by connecting Jesus with Abraham and David? Well, you might remember in Genesis 15 and 17 that one of the great Old Testament promises is the Abrahamic covenant, right? And we could say many things about the Abrahamic covenant, but one of the things for this, morning, or this evening that we need to note is that the Abrahamic covenant kind of entails the blessing of the nations. That out of Abraham would come one who would bless the nations, not just Israel, but the whole world. And then when you get to 2 Samuel, we get, when you get to David, God gives a, a covenant to David too. And that one would come out of David, a king, a royal king who would be king and have a kingdom and that he would rule and reign forever and ever. And so here you have in this genealogy, Matthew wants to connect and sort of weave in together two realities. That in Jesus, you have the hope of the nations, you have the hope of the world, and in Jesus, you have the hope of a king and a kingdom that would go on and on and on forever and ever. And Matthew wants to weave those two realities together to stoke our hearts and our imaginations to sort of get us ready for Christmas. Now, I'm not going to steal Ben's sermon from tomorrow, all right? So you got to come back tomorrow because he's going to preach Matthew uh, chapter 1 starting in verse 18. And in Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 in uh, the next couple verses, it's going to kind of answer the question is, how is Jesus going to accomplish this? Like, what does it mean that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant? Like, how is he going to accomplish this in his life? How is Jesus sort of all of the promises of God rolled up in one? How will he save us? How will he conquer darkness? How will this Messiah born in a manger conquer darkness and evil and sin? That's Ben's sermon, so I'm going to punt. But, lest I sort of leave too much to the imagination, let me just give us the cliff notes from Genesis to Matthew. The sort of theological contours that get us ready through this genealogy, that get us ready for tomorrow, that get us ready for Christmas. Christmas is this. I mean, there's all this conversation about putting Christ back into Christmas, putting Jesus at the center. So if you want to set your heart and hopes, if you want to put Jesus at the center of Christmas, this is the point and purpose of Christmas, according to Matthew. That Jesus, the son of an unexpected Mary, will bless the nations and rule as king over all the world by redeeming sinners who have been exiled from God, and he's going to do it through his death and resurrection. That is the cliff notes of the Old Testament, according to Matthew, that Mary is going to give birth to the Messiah, the hope of the nations, the reigning king who is going to rule and reign and bless humanity 
by living a perfect life and dying and then being vindicated by his father in the resurrection. And that's what we're here to celebrate. That is the hope that we find in the genealogy. I know we glaze over the genealogy, but there is so much good theology here. So let me just encourage you, come back tomorrow, part two. But for us now, let us just be reminded that the hope of the nations, that's us. And that the hope of a king, that's what we want. It all is wrapped up in this genealogy, a reminder that At the advent of Christ, at the birth of Christ, at Christmas, Christ is the son of Abraham and the son of David. Let's pray. God, we we, we are so grateful for your son that we get to just celebrate and praise and just marvel and long and celebrate your son's first coming as we await his second coming. So we thank you for this opportunity to worship you and we pray, Lord, that we would continue to worship you tonight and into the evening and unto the Lord's day tomorrow. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.